This week on The Futurists, Brett and Rob get into the news. What I think that we need to do is that we need to have a biological equivalent or imperative to that, which is that the Earth needs its lawyers. Okay, well, welcome back to yet another episode of The Futurists. I am Rob Tursick with my co-host and friend, Brett, Brett King. King. Here I am. Hi. Live Brett, from Merida in Mexico right now. So One of my favorite parts of the world. I love the Yucatan. It's a great place to go. If you've got the time, you got to go look at some of those ancient Mayan cities. They're still there. I know. I'm not going to. Maybe, maybe tomorrow I'll, I'll go out. But yeah, because I've got to go to South Africa on Sunday. So. Oh, my um, gosh. You never stop. Flying trip. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Well, keep going out there and finding more futures for us in all those corners of the world. You know, it's funny when you think about those ancient civilizations like the Mayan civilization, it's that they had stability for hundreds and sometimes thousands of years. And it's just so hard to imagine that because we are living at a time of such tremendous change, such rapid change. Every single day, it's like drinking from a fire hose now. The news is so complicated and so confusing because things are changing so rapidly. I thought it'd be useful for us to have a conversation and catch up and just say, like, wait, wait, hang on a second. What's happening right now? Let's let's try to get some perspectives yeah. about the the future is coming so fast. Um, you've been on a well, world you know, I think yeah, well, you know, I look, this is the thing is um now that I think there's general acceptance that you know this digital transformation is happening, everyone's panicking that they haven't yes. done enough. You know, that's what the pandemic produced. And 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 so everyone's scrambling to try and respond to this, um, which is not a necessarily very effective way of, of doing this, but it's great if you're a speaker speaking about disruption like you and I, right? Um, <laughs> um and, and but but having said that, I think um, you know, the of, of course the the big news over the last few weeks has been the Silicon Valley Bank collapse. Yeah. And in, you know, to illustrate your point, in conventional times, Silicon Valley Bank wouldn't have collapsed if Peter Thiel hadn't started a run on the bank. And, and I'm going to put the blame fairly squarely on his shoulders here and encouraged his uh, portfolio companies to exit. And that hadn't spiraled on social media. Then Silicon Valley, Valley Bank had already made the moves to um, you know, reduce the the, the risks uh, internally. But, uh, you know, as we were discussing before we, we kicked off the call, you can't have billions of dollars withdrawn overnight. What was it, 50 yeah. billion or whatever? In Nearly the space 50 of billion in a single hours. day. I mean, that's an extraordinary... Right, yeah. That's an extraordinary demand on any organization, N right? No bank has that sort of deposit um, Liquid. flexibility, liquidity, right? Yeah. And, and yeah. you know... Uh, uh, let's face it, in a very low interest rate environment, the only way banks like Silicon Valley Bank could maintain their ability to pay interest rate on deposits and manage that is is by having um you know the these um not not liquid investments, you know, yeah. illiquid investments. So whether that was stocks or, or whatever the case, and you just can't convert those in 24 hours to to cash. Well, to and, and as we saw, they they took a significant haircut, right? They they sold at a loss just to meet the demands, but it wasn't sufficient uh, to to quell the tide. 
Yeah, big challenges there. Uh, lots to unpack. But one of the things you mentioned briefly, we should spend a second talking about is social media as an accelerant. Uh, there's yeah. a lot of change happening, but we also have other change, other technologies that accelerate the pace of change. And what happened in this instance is that it wasn't just a bank run. It was a bank run that was like kind of lit on fire um, by social media. You know, part of that was uh, part part of that was the message to founders fund, the Peter Thiel company, where they you know they were instructed to pull their funds as fast as possible. But then other people started piling in. You know, Jason Calcanis, who's kind of a pundit or gadfly in the tech world, he got out there and was like, you know, now is the time to be afraid, which has got to go down in history as one of the most inflammatory tweets because he was really promoting panic through social media, which is, you know, not well, this exactly what you want to have. frustrates me. You've got these hedge fund guys and these other guys who are trading on the margin of this chaos, you know, mm -hmm. and have the ability to do that. that that's, you know, and have huge influence in terms of markets. And, um, you know, this is this is a, a recipe for disaster when it comes to the stability of systems. But here's the really interesting thing is, um, you know, for when I started the whole bank disruption thing, you know, just even ten years ago, the the claim by traditional banks was a fintech or a mobile wallet operator would never be as trusted as a bank. But we saw the trust of Silicon Valley Bank evaporate overnight, That's and right. that can happen with any bank today. Right, and it's not necessarily just about liquidity; it could be about digital. Right, if if they have a technology failure, trust could evaporate overnight, and you know a run on the bank could uh, could eventuate. And so, um, when you look at the mechanisms we used to have as levers for stability in the economy. A lot of that is disappearing because of this global macro uncertainty. And it's yeah. right now, it's things like social media, but the next generation of uncertainty is going to be artificial intelligence, right? Yeah, already um, you see concerns about disinformation and all of that right now. It's yeah. going to be um it's going to be energy, it's going to be climate response. Um, you know, it's going to be um programs for displacement of human workers by AI. All of these elements are going to create this sort of chaos that can undermine these traditional systems very, very rapidly overnight, as you pointed out. This is the big concern. That's why I wanted to have a conversation with you without a guest. Um, because I want to get my own bearings on this subject. I'm writing about it. I'm thinking about it. You are as well. And I thought we'd share this with our audience right now. We're living in a time of accelerated uncertainty. It's not just a time of accelerated transformation or accelerated change. We hear those terms all the time. And I guess that's true. I suppose that it is a time of accelerated change. But the point I'm focused on today is the uncertainty of it. And as you pointed out a moment ago, there are people who profit from uncertainty. They're actually merchants of doubt, merchants yeah. of uncertainty who are fueling it. And now they have superpowers. Thanks to social media, they can really get out there and whip it up. And it's not just uh, social media that's the culprit here. Uh, in a completely unrelated set of circumstances, we have revelations coming out now about Fox News because of this lawsuit with Dominion right, right. voting systems, where it's becoming very evident that it's an entirely cynical enterprise where no one believes the stuff that they're publishing, but they're saying it as if it's gospel truth, and they're persuading people to get very fired up about it. Uh, so in a way, they're kind of pandering to an audience, but they're treating that audience with tremendous disrespect. 
and yet they fear their audience. That that news organization is right. totally all the way up to well, the, Murdoch, the, the that, you level. know that was it. The response of the 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 organization was to keep their audience happy, yes. despite the fact they knew that they were spreading lies and disinformation. And when you think about um, you know the the we already see the problems with ChatGPT. You know, three and and ChatGPT four in terms of the inaccuracies yeah. that AI can produce. So, if you were to supercharge AI as an influencer, as an ability to um, shape public opinion, you can no longer guarantee that it's going to be accurate information that is shaping opinion. That that. That's no longer a given in today's society. And yeah. no, I think, I think it's the other way truth, around, right? I think it's the other way around. I think you have to assume that there is an element of, of, of falsehood in all the information you're being given right now, That yes. whether it's coming yeah. from a government or a private business or some pundit on television or some random dude on the internet on social media, that some of what they say may be true and some of what they say is 100% bullpucky. And that's a real yeah, exactly. problem, right? Because we have the challenge of trying to distinguish between the two things. And these artificial intelligence systems, they are not going to solve that problem because they're trained on the exact same set of data. And so they're just going to regurgitate and remix it in new ways. It makes it harder for us to sort out what's fact and what's fiction. But unfortunately, that adds to the uncertainty. So it's a strange time because it's not just the uncertainty from tremendous technology change. That's happening for sure. The rapid introduction of technologies that we're not really ready for, the technology's not really ready. But it said on top of that, there are merchants of dissent. There are people who are profiting from the chaos. They're profiting right. from the, the misunderstandings and the confusion. And they actually want to generate even more of that. And for whatever reason, you right? Know, um, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, um, I, so I just, I, I'm I'm not finished it yet, but I'm 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 three quarters of the way through um, Eric Schmidt and, and Kissinger's uh, recent book on the age of AI. Really, and they propose they propose quite a elegant solution to this, which is that AIs need to be certified. You know, so when you think about ethical conduct, ethical constraints, guardrails, and things like that, um, they're proposing that we need some sort of certification process for AI to attest to its accuracy and its performance. And I think that's that great. that's coming you know, from I those think two that's people. A, yeah, I think it, that's a, an elegant solution, right? It's a nice idea, but what it means then is that we're going to trust some centralized authority. And this brings us right to Web3, which is the whole point of Web3 is that we don't trust centralized authority anymore. And so, you know, what, what Kissinger and Eric Schmidt are proposing is that some smart authority with a bunch of smart people is going to tell us whether or not that AI is trustworthy. Why but how, how, can you, how can you create, um, like, ethical frameworks for the operation of AI without some form of centralization. I mean, um, you know, if you look at consensus-based sort of behavior mechanisms around DeFi and the crypto community, you know, you'd have to say that that's been a demonstrable failure, you know, that, that self-regulation by the industry hasn't worked. If you look at the fossil fuel industry, um, not only did they not self-regulate, but they spent 50 years trying to muddy the waters in, in terms of climate change. If you look at the question on vaccines, one of the problems we have with people not trusting, you know, sort of the, the, the medical system in terms of the vaccinations was we, we know big pharma make 
makes decisions to benefit the corporation over in the health of individuals. Look at the price of insulin in the United States. And so mm-hmm. these, these systems are no longer credible on their own. And, and so self-regulation you're making my point is, is for not me something that that's if, viable. You're right. making my point for me, though. You're saying that you know, we, we don't trust big pharma, we don't trust big oil, we don't trust these other Why should we trust big AI then? Well, this is where you need a social consciousness. You know, we yeah. need we we need um, goals or objectives of these systems that are bigger than making profit, right? And if you look at, um, you know, the motivations be to- behind Peter Thiel and 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 uh, Jason, um, you know, talking about the the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and so forth, you have to question their motives. So let's take let's take individual motives out of this. Let's take lobbying groups out of the process of manipulating law as an example. And let's say there must be a consensus mechanism which is built based on you know what this corporation or market function does for the society as a whole. Yeah. If you if you look at the problem we have in capitalism with wealth distribution, this is because the people who are making decisions in terms of how wealth is distributed are the top you know, 0.1% of, of the community, and yeah, they're but, not necessarily but, representative, but they've well, got the power, what, but, right? But that's what Kissinger is recommending for AI, is another 1% uh, elite is going to make the call on whether it's a trustworthy AI. Um, yeah, I see what you're, you're saying. Your point about the decentralized consensus system is a very, very, very relevant point. That's what I'm working on now for my next book. And it's a subject that I care deeply about because I see that the old consensus mechanisms that govern society are broken. And actually it's very profitable right now to break them. Uh, So for instance, if you're running a big business and you don't like regulation, then you can buy a politician for relatively cheap and assure yourself that that person's not gonna vote for regulation that controls your business. It's just, it's a really smart investment for the company. It's terrible for the environment, you know, if it's about re- environmental regulation, um, but it's a pretty easy and kind of a no-brainer move. And you wonder why do corporations- Well, you know, p- part, part of the reason Silicon Valley Bank failed also was that the Basel risk um, regulations, um, which were, uh, ensconced in the Dodd-Frank, you know, laws in the United States, that Trump actually rolled back those regulations. So only the top 20 20 banks in the United States had had to do that. The biggest banks in the US had to be compliant. And Silicon Valley Bank just fitted under that threshold. So part of the reason Silicon Valley Bank failed was because of lack of regulation. So I don't necessarily think that no regulation is good. I think we are going to have to have more centralized regulation and governance in terms of ethical standards, in terms of um, you know environmental standards, in, in terms of how we respond to things like uh, you know the coming immigration eco, eco refugee crisis, um, you, know, uh, you know other pandemics. We we need to have more um, planning and systems of response that are sort of coordinated at a society level, um, but geared towards benefiting benefiting society. How do you get the small function of government that decides on those mechanisms to make them appropriately inclusive? Well, this sort of comes back to consensus-based government and yeah. real-time governance, right, where you re- you have you use technology as the power of the people. If you want de- democracy, demos kratos, right, um, we don't have, you know, 
um, the, if you look at um, you know the U.S. as a system today, um, the vast majority of Americans are not happy about the inequality that exists. The vast majority of Americans aren't happy about the lack of health care. The, the vast majority of Americans support the right um, for women to choose. But this is not reflected in the legislature um, because the, me the mechanism of representative government doesn't fully work. So I guess that question is how would you use technologies to create that more representative form of government? So some folks would say that that system's broken and, and they want to see it broken. I, I'm not in that camp, but I hear that quite often where people say, uh, trying to fix a broken thing, you're just you're trying to patch something that's outdated. Um, and and by some extent, you know, to some extent, if you if you consider that the U.S. it's kind of remarkable, um, you know, a, a democracy written on paper that was written 250 years ago still manages uh, to find a way through to muddle through. I wouldn't say it's doing a perfect job, but back to the old Winston Churchill saying it's uh, you know it's the worst form of government except for all the others, and it has been fairly durable. Uh, but globally, but, you know, uh, democracies are being rolled back. You know, the, what's rising is authoritarian right. governments of all sorts, right. where they concentrate power but, in a fewer hands. But but I think part of the problem here is, um, you know, I, I go back to the days of Aristotle and Socrates and, and, and Plato, is we valued a function of society that would sit and think about these things, that would model new approaches, that would try different thinking. We we don't have that today. We try and reinforce these tribalism views and these systemic views. You know, like if you look at the conversation around reform of capitalism today, you know, I posted something on Twitter early today, you know, a couple of days ago about this, and suddenly I've been accused of being a communist, right, because you either support capitalism or you you're a communist, which is, you know, not really, uh, you know, an, uh, in any remote way, an accurate view of the world. <laughs> but for us to have realistic conversations about the reform of these systems, we need to actually value a function of society that thinks about these problems and models different solutions. Yeah. Instead of right now, where anybody that tries to say, let's tweak this system to improve it, oh, you're a socialist, oh, you're a communist or whatever, yeah. um, you know, um, and it's not going to work. So I, I think we need to return to those sort of that age of philosophy and thinking about, you know, how do we explore the the sort of configuration of the human species and society and, you, yeah. know, um, you know, what can we imagine that's better? Yeah, there are some people that don't want to have the conversation and they want to stop your thought process. And so they just lob in a, a uh you know, a thought terminating comment, like you're a communist. And then that just blows up the whole conversation. You can't pursue it any further, even though whatever you're proposing has absolutely nothing to do with communism or state controlled apparatus or state controlled capital and industry. Uh, you know, if, if the person on the other side knew what the hell they were talking about, they wouldn't use that term. But right now it's just a way to stop a conversation. Um, why does that happen? Why do we want to destroy the ability to thrash through ideas? Wouldn't it be more healthy for us to be able to argue both sides of the argument, to actually entertain both perspectives? I mean, that's the best way we're going is, to arrive. Yeah, but there is that argument from Thomas Jefferson. Um, you know, you know, Jefferson argued that the reason education should be free in the United States is you want an engaged um, citizenry. 
yeah. that um, and an engaged citizenry that has the responsibility to vote should do so on the basis of education. And at a time when um, education should be freely available and high quality, we're actually seeing, you know, deterioration of, of the results at a, at a mass level. So that's part of the problem is if you do want true representative consensus-based governance, mm -hmm. you have to really educate people about the real problems. We don't have that at the moment. We have no. echo chambers. Follow the money. Well, whose interest right. is it to have a bunch of stupid, uninformed voters who can't even articulate the facts or handle a reasonable debate? Well, obviously, there are some powerful interests that would prefer not to have not to be challenged by a thinking Absolutely. public, right? So, for those folks, it's relatively cheap to game the system. I think right now, I would say my observation, at least about the United States, is that it's easier and cheaper to bank on disruption and to fuel disruption and dissent. Uh, and to break consensus than it is to build consensus. Consensus is a very delicate thing. And it requires cooperation and it requires people to play fairly. Uh, if people want to bend the rules or break the rules, uh, you're not going to get to consensus. Then you're going to get to, you know, something short of that and probably some kind of dissent or, you know, some kind of, you're, you certainly will be thwarted in your ability to do more. So what we end up doing is preserving the entire the politic, quo. Yeah. The entire political system in the U.S. right now is powered on this, you know, red versus blue, you know, uh, sort of concept. If, if you yeah. look at it, I think, you know, if you look at the core in terms of political ideology, um, you know, Americans on, you know, from, you know, far left, far right or whatever you would call it in, in the debate, they probably agree on 80 percent of policy. Right. And so there's, you know, Americans probably agree on more things than they disagree on. But it, as you say, it's that trading on the margins of, mm. you know, and amplifying these differences rather than amplifying the things that we have in common. It's a, a very divisive. How, how is the human species going to progress to the next level if we're fighting amongst each other? You know, this is well, the these, thing. I, I, these, these two categories, red and blue, what do they even represent anymore? Right. Uh, exactly. Neither, neither party is going to take on the banking industry in a meaningful way. And neither party is going to take on the energy industry in a meaningful right. way. Neither party is going to fully promote the kind of equality that we're talking about. Neither party is for universal health care right now. Some are, some politicians are, but neither party stands for that. So these red and blue um, classifications, I think, are a distraction. It's not going to get us there, yeah. It's not. And and where people do have a lot of, uh, you know, collective interest is... Um, when it comes to inequality, inequality of access, not just inequality, uh, financial yes. inequality. Uh, and you can see that cutting across um, race and gender. You can see that cutting across lots of different socioeconomic uh, classes. And by the way, the people who benefit the most from the status quo or from putting you know, sand in the gears of the machinery of government are the people who have the most to lose. So that would be your yes. wealthiest people, right? They, have, they benefit the most from this current system, particularly since the Ronald Reagan tax cuts, which skewed so heavily in favor of wealth creation and aggregation of great deals of wealth for a small number. For those folks, it makes all the economic sense in the world to freeze things with the status quo, to prevent any kind of progress. So what's odd about the moment that we're in right now, Brett, is that we have tremendous technological process, progress happening. On a daily basis, it's really hard to keep up with all the new technologies that are coming. And we'll talk about that more in the second half. But our institutions that govern society, they're frozen. 
They can't it adapt. Exactly. And there are many people yeah. who are working hard to stop that, to do everything they can to prevent those uh, systems from adapting. There are a lot of people in the United States who think it's illegal to, th- to start a third party. Like they literally believe that they are not allowed to start a third party in this country. Of course they are. Well, some I saw someone trying to pass a law in Florida that would make uh, Democrats illegal, you know, which is just like, so they're trying to get rid of the another party. It's like make it a one party system. Well, that's that's autocratic system, right? Well, you know, it, that's working in China, but I, I have my doubts about those autocratic systems because historically they get brittle and break, uh, particularly when they're sure. organized around an individual. Um, well, we don't have time to do the the quick questions or our, our typical rapid no, but let's, questions. Yeah, but let, let's do let's do this. Let's take a break, and when we come back, um, let's get into where where the chaos is is likely going to emerge in the system, where the system is most likely to break, and then um, you know, let's talk about how long it's going to take to fix it. Wow, great. Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support the Futurist podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the Fintech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and Next Gen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. Welcome back. You're listening to The Futurist with Rob Tursick and Brett King. And we're just thrashing through the chaotic landscape of the news this week. We decided to skip having a guest because there's just so much change in the air. Everything from extreme climate conditions to the advent of of, uh, artificial intelligence assistance now with GPT-4 and some advances in mid-journey. We were talking about the people that are producing or maybe profiting from fake news, which isn't just social media. It's also in the broadcast news recently this month with news about Fox News disseminating, knowingly disseminating false information. And there is a real impact, as Brett was saying before the break. Uh, this recent run on banks that's undergoing right now. Uh, you know, the last two weeks it was Silicon Valley Bank, but now it's spreading to other banks around the world. That's fueled in, part, in Europe. Yep, that's fueled in part by social media and by the dissemination of fake news. So these things all fit together in a way to create a chaos field, a big and it seems to me expanding chaos field, where previously we had stability. Previously, you could go to bed at night and expect to wake up in the morning, the world would be reasonably similar. Now you wake up in the morning, look at your phone, you're like, what fresh hell is being delivered to me today by my iPhone? I'll tell you, man, it's exhausting looking at the news. <laughs> I'm enjoying well, it. Well, you know, unfortunately, it's not going to, we're not going to really, I, I've been thinking about this recently, and I don't think we're going to come out of this period of chaos for another 15 to 20 years. I think you're right. Because... Because the greatest chaos is yet to come, and that is twofold, right? Um, which you, you'll hear as central themes on the futurist all the time. You know, one is artificial intelligence and its broad impact on on systems in society, and the second is simply climate change. 
you know, um, the massive displacement of eco-refugees, food scarcity. Um, you know, I've been listening to, uh, to this oil and gas commentator on TikTok recently. We must get him on the show, actually. Can't bring his name up. But he was he was saying that what's already happened is investment is pulling away from fossil fuels because hydrocarbons are bad for banks. You know, the ESG initiatives, banks are not lending to coal plants and fossil fuel companies anymore because of this, but it's costing a lot more money to extract oil and gas today than it did 20 years ago. Mm. So you've got the price of the oil and gas sector going up, a lack of investment in this. So what happens five, 10 years down the track is that the price of fuel just spikes incredibly. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, there's margin to be made in in that area, obviously, but we haven't replaced those systems fast enough because we haven't been investing the last 20 to 30 years in renewables and next generation nuclear and, you know, electric vehicle infrastructure and things like that as we should have to Mm -hmm. have an orderly transition. And so a lot of the friction and chaos we're going to face, whether it is displacement of human workers from artificial intelligence, whether it is the impact of, you know, um, rising sea levels, um, you know, the collapse of fossil fuels, all this sort of stuff, a lot of this is because we have just too short term in our thinking as a as a species. Um, and yeah, that's for because, sure. Because the systems reinforce the and, existing players rather and than and democratic democratic systems in particular have this flaw, which is that they can only respond to a problem. They're not very good at dealing proactively with an issue that might emerge. Part of that is because of our luck. Because people debate whether it is going to happen, right? Well, that's we don't it. know whether climate then, change is real. Well, right. and, and then there's exactly. always going to be a lobby from some industry or another that says, you know, you're going to interfere in the free market and you got to stay away from that. And that, you know, right now that's like a third rail. Most politicians don't want to be seen to be monking around with the with the economy in a way that might shrink it or damage it in some way. So they stay away from that. Uh, and so, and then, and then finally, you know, the future the future doesn't have a lobbyist. This is an important point. Like, no one is in Washington yeah. lobbying for the future. There's, they should. Maybe be. that's what you and I should do. Maybe we should do well, the futurist well, lobbying. I, I spend plenty of time tried these days talking to governments, and I got to tell you, it's a thankless task. You know, they so, hear you. They're just not going to do anything about it because nobody is whispering in their ear. Nobody's putting ten dollars in their pocket. Nobody's. In it's not going to get a vote, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's not going to, and um, it's not going to get money. You need yeah. an educated populace to demand it. And actually, every time there's been major change, at least in this country, it's because a large number of people came out in the streets and demanded change. But right now, people don't know what to demand, right? Because there's a lot of confusion. We're not sure. what. what you know, well, the, we- the, but the populist movement was part of that, right? You know, if you look at protests globally in the in the last 20 years, we've seen the, the volume of uh, pro- or the frequency of protests increase 200% based on the 50-year average of the 20th century. And we've seen participation or the volume of protests um, increase by a 1,000%. So but, people but we are haven't unhappy. Seen any, there's been no impact but on we, government. There's been no improvement in right. governance, right? So so those... In fact, you could argue it's been worse, right? Well, the, that's what I like think. The Brexit decision in the UK and... And you know, the populist Trump's movement under Trump. Yeah, the, those those were populist movements that were misguided. They were co-opted in some, you know, in some respects. I don't think you need to be a conspiracy theorist to think that certain interests managed to get control of those movements and direct them in a certain direction um, that served their interests. Sure. You know, I I think that's actually quite 
quite likely to be the case. So you've got the ineffectiveness of government and then its inability to adapt, even when there are strong signals coming. Uh, as you mentioned before, the well, break, is, you know, what the U.S. what the U.S. population wants versus what they're getting from the government. There, mm-hmm. There's a gigantic gap there. Well, here's where AI makes this interesting. And if we're going to talk about the solutions to these problems, um, you know, a core focus of AI, which aligns with the whole market theory, is effective resource management. One of the reasons we are going to implement AI is because it will produce incredible wealth and incredible opportunities for taking really sticky systemic problems and fixing them with sort of high levels of automation. Example. But in the process of well, give, give so me, if, let's, tell me let's one. take let's take let's take um resource management at a city city state level, right? Um, you know, sanitation, water, water usage, energy management in a in a climate um you know, world, um, you know, uh, infrastructure resilience, all of those things. So you, what you're trying to do is, yes, you're looking at resilience, but you're also trying to make it more efficient and reduce the cost of government with, with automation. And in the process of doing that, you really have to look at system design, you know, large-scale system design. And we really ha- haven't done that in very effective ways, except for during the Industrial Revolution. In the Industrial Revolution, we had these pushes by governments to, for example, for the first time, put in running water and sanitation and put in electricity, you know, instead of, um, you know, localised gas lanterns and things like this. And and suddenly you have people thinking, you know, very rapidly in many cases, having to deploy new systems that worked uh, in respect to, the, the industrial revolution leaps in technology. The same is very true for artificial intelligence because as you're trying to build these systems to be highly automated and more effective, you have to take the laws and regulations and the infrastructure that we have today and parse it through some lens that can be translated into code or that um, AIs can um, you know uh, manage. And 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 chaos is not a good um, lens <laughs> for AI to build systems on. So you, you're going to be looking at ways. Where are the biggest gains that AI can produce in terms of government efficiency, as an example? So if you look at healthcare, um, you know there's some really obvious areas. Better diagnostics. You know, immediately, you know, 40% of diagnostics in the healthcare industry in the US are, are wrong today, which is why you always ask for a second opinion. The administrative costs of healthcare in the US are higher than any other of the OECD nations. Robotic process automation can attack that. But you have to attack the system in terms of its design. And this is where we're going to have the, the battle over the next 10, 20 years. Apart from climate, you're going to have this push to make the economy more resilient and more automated because that's where the massive wealth creation is going to be. But to do that, you have to undermine the existing power structures and yeah. existing systems. Yeah, you mentioned healthcare and energy a moment ago and um, and water, right? These are three systems that are highly contested right now. And what I'm seeing is that governments, at least in the United States, They've lost the political will for the fight. They don't even want to take yeah. on those entrenched interests. So they're simply rel- uh, relinquishing the decision-making 
to those groups. If you look at healthcare right now, you've got you know insurance companies, private insurance companies, an anomaly, really. The rest of the world doesn't operate their insurance that way. Their health insurance is provided through a central entity, not through, uh, not through a bunch of competing firms that make a 30% profit margin. Then you've got the providers, which is really hospitals and doctors. These groups are fighting with each other constantly. Who gets left out in the middle is the consumer, sure. the patient at the, at the end. They're not represented in that debate at all. Uh, so for us, what happens is healthcare costs continue to rise and rise and rise. And I'd say the quality of the coverage hasn't gotten better. It looks like our healthcare outcomes are getting worse on average. If you're very wealthy in the United States, of course, you get access to a different kind of healthcare system where you get superb outcomes, uh, but that's not what most people get to enjoy, unfortunately. So we have a distribution problem as well, but I wouldn't look to that system to do effective or fair redistribution of resources. Are you proposing that? Well, you, you could argue it's... Well, this this is this is what I mean is is um, I think one of the really most valued roles that we have in in society in respect to AI integration will be big system thinking um, and how we sort of create this sort of transformative view of how do we transform the system. So instead of today where it's like injecting um, internet into the business to revolutionize commerce or injecting AI to make your business smarter, I think let's take that to the next step, which is how do we really transform our thinking about how this system should work? And th that requires two things. It requires a technology that can really disrupt, and we've clearly got that. But the second thing is what is the purpose of the system? And that's what I think is also part of the, uh, the outcome at the other end of this disruption we're seeing in terms of the disinformation, the fake news, you know, manipulation of behavior and social media, coming out of the other side of this will be a, um, a reckoning with the powers that be um, that you need a genuine social conscience, consciousness behind corporations, behind governments that, you know, uh, uh, you know, this is what we argued in, in the new book, The Rise of Techno-Socialism, is that um, if, if the economy doesn't serve the citizens, how can you say it's successful? If, I'd say right the now the economy... People can't the economy is about harvesting citizens right now. Whether you know you're harvesting right. people for fees if it's a bank, you're harvesting people for fees if it's an insurance company or healthcare provider. And in the case of technology, you're harvesting people for data patterns that can be mined and you're know, repackaged, repurposed, and sold back to them in a new format. Uh, so I don't think that there's any advocate there in the private sector for people or for society uh, that you're looking for. Now, if we look to government, well. Government's co-opted, right? It's it's not clear the champion is going to come from there either. It's hard to say that we can point to the government and say, oh, there's going to be enlightened leadership there that rises above narrow self-interest or economic interest to try to serve equally all the population. Um, I don't see that any place in the world right now. So it's, you need a groundswell, right? You need you need yeah. a you effectively need, need a you need a you need a information revolution, right? You need a where people demand out on the streets that the you know. And what's going to get us to this point? Um, you know, uh, two things are going to get us there. I think 
One is the high levels of unemployment generated by artificial intelligence and the effect of climate change. Both of that is going to um, produce sort of a revolutionary shift in in the role that government and regulation and, and technology should play at a society level. At least that's that's my belief. It, it'll create an opportunity for something to fill in a void, right? It creates a void, a vacuum. It creates a panic, which is could be energy that could be directed in one direction or another. Uh, that's true, right? Great displacement in terms of jobs and great displacement from, from climate change is going to cause people to panic and freak out and look for leadership. My fear is that in historically, in times of great chaos, what emerges isn't a better democracy from chaos. What emerges is a charismatic dictator uh, who tells people the things they want to hear and then charges ahead and does what he wants to do. And unfortunately, around the world, we're seeing that happen again and again. And I think AI actually does not redistribute power or knowledge. I think it reinforces no, the existing it do, pattern. It does, it, yeah, it does right now. And it can be weaponized, of course, um, you know, in, in many ways. But ultimately, if it gets to that point where I I can't get a job, mm-hmm. and that means I can't feed, clothe, and house my, my family because I've been disrupted by this, how much of that, Am I going to accept politically just because the other guys are the bad guys? They're the guys. Yeah, that are creating but look, the we have a system for that today. We warehouse those people True. in prisons for profit. It's actually a pretty good business to put to to take unnecessary people That's and put them, in a, put them in a warehouse and profit from it. The government pays you for that. And also, when they come out, they're not allowed to vote in some states, and so you actually deprive them of the franchise. This is the crazy system that we have right now. So you're right. I mean, one way to look at it, I, I agree entirely with you. Surely an AI could design a better system than the one we've created for ourselves. I don't know if the AI has the power to do that. Let me run. No, but I guess that's idea. where the, the I guess I guess that's where the the debate needs to come in is yes. you know, as we're looking at the impact that AI has, the biggest impact it will will have is really working outside of human logic. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, if if you look at the advances we're seeing in AI in fields of diagnostics, for example, um, you know, what's happening in the medical fields with new proteins being discovered, new medicines, antibiotics being discovered. The, the examples where AI is really, um, you know, making advances is not necessarily following human logic. Yeah, or, that's true. You know, um, and, and novel so already, already novel we have too. AI. Right. We, already we have AI that's demonstrating different thinking from humans. Yeah. So the real question is, are we grown up enough as a species to recognize that the things that we've been married to, you know, are ready to be displaced by new thinking? And are we prepared to, um, you know, let AI come in? Well, the real the, the problem we have in the short term is that we we can't necessarily guarantee that AI is going to come up with a better solution, um, you know, uh, but but at the same time, I think we have a fair basis for saying that human logic um, and human operated systems have reached reached their limitation from a design perspective. <laughs> well, and, and they're and they're falling down, right? They're breaking now because we're we're stressing them to a point where they can't keep up. Uh, they're slow. They're slow to change. They're poor at adapting. They're poor at anticipating. Uh, so the systems we've got right now that we've developed, basically the best we've been able to do as a species 
isn't enough to keep up with the rate of technological change. So we're going to need help. Well, this is right, this is to harness AI to do that. This is, when you start talking about U.S. democracy as an example or capitalism, and when you have that, you know, I, I see it all the time because of the the you know talking about this disruptive stuff. You know, you'll get these people immediately jump to defending the system. But yeah. then I just ask that simple question is, in a 1,000 years or 10,000 years, do you imagine that this is the very best system that we could ever come up with? And you <laughs> use the Churchill quote, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, but, and the answer is no, it's not the best of system. Of course not. Of course with, not. Right? But the problem is everybody wants to change a different thing. And so like, the reality is not everybody wants to change everything. In fact, nobody wants to change everything. Everything is changing, but not everybody wants to change everything. Everybody wants to hang on to something from the past, but we all want to hang on to different pieces. And that's where the fight fits in. We don't have a common vision for a future. And we haven't found a good way to articulate a common vision for a future that people can buy into. Uh, so you end up with these, you know, kind of point by point battles over a policy where it's like, well, we'll give you that. We're going to take away this piece. It doesn't change the big arrangement in any meaningful way. It's all incremental. It all feels like we're moving around deck chairs on the Titanic. But is there a, is there a generational shift to this? I mean, you've got yeah. You know, you've got kids, I've got kids. Yeah. Our kids think about this differently, right? My yeah. kids are not driven by this need to create wealth and and um you know get assets. Right? You know, um I I mean my my son for example who's 20 in Australia, you know, he's now a seller manager at this this upmarket wine bar and restaurant in Sydney. He's doing quite well for himself, but he sees the job as a mechanism to create experiences that allows is going to allow him to live the life that he wants to live. He's not thinking about it like, you know, when when we grew up as kids, thinking about buying the home, you know, the white picket fence, you know, and, and all, you know, invest and having a good retirement, that you know, our kids just aren't thinking thinking like that. And okay, and but this is the danger. Of is, it's a danger to extrapolate from your own kids because they might be coasting on privilege in a way that might ultimately be de detrimental to their future, right? And true. as parents, we're supposed to be concerned about that. We want to see our kids plan and so on. And probably every generation has had this exact same conversation. I'm sure our parents had it about us as well. My son, Brett, wants to be a futurist. What the heck is that? You know, you can imagine that conversation going on. Um, so I, I, I'm hesitant to try to generalize about generations, but I am optimistic yeah. about a couple of things. First of all, the baby boom generation had a transformative effect. There's no question about it. There should be books written about it. The sweeping change that that generation had each decade as it moved through, you know, from uh, in education in the 60s and 70s and then into finance in the 1980s, the revolution. revolution we could do capital. with the new baby boom. And um, well, you have it, right? You have it coming. The millennial generation is quite big. Um, so they kind of, the baby boom kind of recasted institutions in its own form. And it's also been an incredibly destructive and self-obsessed uh, group of people. Um, yeah. Now they're coming to an end. So now they're going to retire every year now from now on. 
there'll be more baby boomers retiring um, from the workforce. And so their influence will diminish. They're not going anywhere because they're the healthiest and richest generation in history. So they're going to be around for a long time and they have a lot of resources. So they'll speak with- But in terms of policy setting, you know, they're going to get less influence and more of the younger generation. You know, you got like, there's a lot of debate around people like AOC in the US and others, but, you know, and, and, um, you know, look at uh, Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand and the the Swedish prime minister and all that sort of stuff. You know, you, you do have this next generation of policymakers coming in. It's true. It seems to me that other countries have mastered this transition a little bit more gracefully than the U.S. We're we're still fighting like kind of the last generation's battle, it seems. I mean, come on, dude. You know, we've still got the Second Amendment and we're arguing a well um, militia, you know, it's like it's 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 pretty crazy. Um, but um, that's the problem with having a know. constitution from the 17th century. My goodness, you know, we're just encumbered by all these artifacts from the past and they doom us to this day. <laughs> they always end up being the guy who's most negative and pessimistic about these things. Hey, Brett, last idea here for you. So um, artificial intelligence, it's clearly a tool for profit maximization. So it's also, as you mentioned, a way to do scenarios. You can query it. You can ask for you know different points of view. It can help you in many, many ways. But it's clearly a way to automate some of the higher order reasoning that we usually pay white collar workers to do. So it's clearly got a disruptive effect or it's going to displace a lot of workers. That's causing a great Lawyers, accountants, doctors. Yep. And maybe those industries are ripe for this disruption. So maybe that maybe the time has come for that to happen. Um, But as I think that through, I think about it a bit more and I say, you know, if corporations adopt this wholeheartedly, and they go for full-on automation. Every job that can be automated will be. I think that's a very likely possibility, right? I think that's a That's what the market is going to drive. It's going to drive, yeah. right? And we have this kind of, you know, um, Milton Friedman-esque mantra in the United States we've had for 50 years, which is all about shareholder, you know, return to shareholders and maximizing shareholder return. Uh, that's the guiding ethos of the corporation, that it's not about social impact. It's not about stakeholders. It's not about ESG. It's all about just return to shareholders. If you buy that, and I think a lot of managers do more than they say, um, people say things about ESG, but they really do things to support that William, that, that Milton Friedman mantra. Then the logical conclusion is that we're going to automate every job in the corporation, that the successful cor- corporation of the future will be a robotic be company. a DAO. It'll exactly. be a doubt. It's the original idea of the and a government. The government would be a doubt. Okay, so if you buy that, then um, I've been reading a fascinating book called "We the Corporations," which is a history of corporations in the United States and the history of how they became persons. And it's quite an interesting story because we think it was all Citizens United, but it happened actually started way back. Some of the very first Supreme Court cases were argued by the best attorneys in the United States because corporations have always been able to hire the best legal talent. And it turns out most Supreme Court decisions that affect rights, uh, the rights of individuals, rights of people, were argued by the best attorneys in the country on behalf of corporations. So even like um, our equal rights here in the United States were argued by, uh, by great attorneys like Thurgood Marshall on behalf of a corporation, the NCAAP. And so of course you have Corporate rights increasing, even as individual rights are being preserved. So this is how this is how AI rights are going to um, AI, be incorporated into AI corporations society. Will hire the best attorneys, exactly. and they will get rights. And you're going to start to see something novel. I think we're at the birth of a new kind of person, a corporate person that will have its own intelligence and its own set of defined rights. I know that sounds preposterous, but we're talking about the future. That's my scenario for today. That we're going to soon have corporations. 
uh, robot corporations in the clouds that have the same rights as citizens in democracies. And uh, that process has been underway for more than 200 years. It's going to just continue as these corporations get more and more powerful, as the, as the robots uh, increase in power, and as they join together. I, I can't argue against that. What I, what I think that we need to do is that we need to have a biological equivalent or imperative to that, which is that the earth needs its lawyers yeah. that argue yeah. for its rights, that's right. that's that the, the other species we share the planet with. There, there is case law coming. So there's respected. case law coming that, yeah. that rivers have rights and, and ecosystems right. have rights. And attorneys are trying to make that case. The courts haven't been very favorable, certainly not as favorable as they are to corporations. Uh, but watch this space, because I think the point you're making is right. It's like, you know, someone I, I, has to... Again, you, you, this is how we got to drive a social consciousness, you know, is, um, you know, you can have the richest corporations in the world, but if you can't feed your citizens, you know, at some point, um, you know, the, the system's going to break. So um, hopefully that'll be be the catalyst. But I, I just like to think that... If AI does automate all this part of society, then then what do we what do we do with that time? And I think this is the great shift that AI should enable for humanity, is that we'll have the time and uh, you know uh, flexibility to really think deeply about what sort of future we want to build for the species, and have bigger aims than just making profits. I think, I think that's a very limiting view that um, that human society has today in terms of that market-driven approach. There must be more to human existence and the future of humanity than just making profit. You know, what do we want to do? I'm with you. From your lips to chat GPT's ears, I'm with you, my friend. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a good vision for the future. And we need an optimistic vision to be pulling toward because God knows there's enough chaos we're staring down a double-barreled shotgun full of chaos and more coming, as you point out. Crazy times. It's fun it's to catch up with you, before world it gets better, But I am optimistic that we can come out the other end of this with something better for our grandkids. May not be for our kids, but for our grandkids. Brett, it's what I love about talking to you, man. You're always optimistic, even in the face of the craziest times. Well, uh, thank you for making time to catch up with me as you're traveling around the world. I'm always eager to hear about your pursuits and all the new people you're meeting. Um, I think that's probably it for this week. We have just been thrashing around a lot of topics that both of us have been texting each other about for the last few weeks. And uh, we'll be back. And again. we didn't even, you know, we were going to do this show on climate change impact, right? We, that's uh, we what we started, this idea. And we haven't even, we haven't even touched that. So that's the next one. We've got to get into climate in a big way. We'll do it. All right, my friend, safe travels. And for the folks who are listening, thank you. Thank you all for tuning in. Brett and I love recording these shows. And of course, we will see you in the future. In the future. <laughs> well, that's it for the futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.